Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the grounding of the fleets of Boeing 737 MAX aircraft after a door blew off one in mid-flight, and look into how a storied American company was taken over by numbers crunches and still has a disastrous CEO in charge who ignored aeronautical engineers who wanted to build a new plane rather than bulk up the old 737, resulting in a flying turkey. Joining us is Jeff Wise, a science journalist specialising in aviation and psychology, a licensed pilot of gliders and light airplanes. He has served as an on-camera aviation analyst on CNN, Fox News and MSNBC, and his articles have appeared in the New York Magazine, the New York Times, Time, Business Week, Esquire, and many others. And he's the author of The Taking of MH370 and the new podcast series, Deep Dive MH370. Then we'll assess the case brought by South Africa against Israel in the International Criminal Court of Justice, accusing the Jewish state of genocide in Gaza and calling for an immediate ceasefire. Joining us is Chris McGreal, who writes for The Guardian US and is a former Guardian correspondent in Washington, Johannesburg and Jerusalem. He's the author of American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts, and his latest article at The Guardian is How Apartheid History Shaped South Africa's Genocide Case Against Israel. Jewish groups have accused the ANC of anti-Semitism, but the International Court of Justice case stems from parties' long-standing support for Palestinians. Then finally, we'll speak with John Judas, editor-at-large at Talking Points Memo, and author of many books, including The Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the Revolt Against Globalization, and The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, and Socialism. We will discuss his latest book, co-written with Rui Teixeira, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes, and whether the Biden campaign, just getting underway, can return the party to the New Deal fight for the common man and equal opportunity instead of identity politics and sucking up to Wall Street and Silicon Valley. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Jeff Wise, a science journalist specializing in aviation and psychology, a licensed pilot of gliders and light airplanes. He has served as an on-camera aviation analyst on CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC, and his articles have appeared in the New York Magazine, New York Times, Time, Business Week, Esquire, and many others. And he's the author of The Taking of MH370, and he has a new podcast series, Deep Dive MH370. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeff Wise. Thank you. Thank I'm uh, grateful to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. I obviously want to talk to you about the grounding of the 737 Maxis fleets across the country following the blowout. I think it was a door that blew out, was it, or, or a window? Well, it actually was a plug uh, that was designed to take the place of an emergency exit that the plane was designed to be able to have, but that customers could choose not to have. Um, the number of emergency exits depends on the seating configuration. If you have a lot of people, you need to have more exits for them to escape through. Um, in this case, Alaska Airlines was, was flying it with a lower number of seats, and so they didn't need the emergency exits. They, so they had asked Boeing to please, you know, don't, don't give us that emergency exit. So uh, Boeing plugged it, and, um, and that's what came out. So they didn't plug it properly. Well, the work was done by a subcontractor called Spirit um, Aviation, and they do a lot of work for Boeing. Um, much of what a Boeing is is work by subcontractors. And they did it, obviously, either Boeing designed it improperly or Spirit did the work improperly, but definitely something was wrong. This is a brand-new plane. You don't expect pieces to come flying off. So, obviously, I want to talk to you about going back to we originally spoke when, back when the 737 MAX was first launched and there were two deadly crashes and we discussed what kind of a plane it is and that Boeing had the choice. And apparently a lot of the aeronautical engineers sort of wanted to build a new plane from scratch, but I don't know whether it was the numbers crunches, whoever it was decided, no, we'll just... We'll just bulk up the 737 we have, like put it on steroids. Yeah. So let's go back to that uh, original sin, if you will. Describe what you feel happened there. Well, you know, the 737 dates back to the late 60s. It's a plane that was originally designed for a time when airports were very different from they are today, and they they didn't tend to have ramps. Uh, I mean, the, the, the jetways and things. And so the plane was designed to be fairly low to the ground so you could climb onto it from a set of movable stairs. And so then as time went by, and they, the aviation industry basically figured out that you need to have bigger and bigger engines to have more efficient engines. Uh, and they got into this really, you know, it became harder to really make the 737 a truly modern aircraft with, with modern-sized engines. And that's what that's what led them to that whole problem. Now they could have just started with they should have said, okay, now for this segment of the industry, this is airplanes that carry about 150 people, kind of at the low end of the major commercial airliners. We should we should start off with a clean sheet of paper. That would have um, been more expensive, and it also would have required that all of the airlines that were flying legacy 737s would have to retrain their uh, their pilots. And this was seen, I think, by the management at Boeing as a as a potentially a major competitive disadvantage in their ongoing struggle against Airbus. Um, and so I think they, they sort of looked at all the different aspects of it and thought, okay, we're going to try to keep this, we're going to try to keep this old rickety airship afloat um, by just sort of um, putting lipstick on a pig to mix metaphors. Uh, and, and hence we have this rather snake bit program called the 737 MAX. So is the plane itself uh, airworthy? My understanding is that it has to be flown by computer. 
Well, that's true of all airline, all modern airliners or fly or fly by wire, the seven eight seven, the A three fifty. The computer, the, the basically, as a pilot, you ask the plane to do something, and then the plane decides how it's going to do that. Um, so, with the, the particular problem that involved the the, um, the crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia. These had to do with an automated system that Boeing had introduced but not told anybody about, um, and that kicked in at a time at a sort of unusual corners of the envelope that they I think they figured no one would ever get to. Uh, so that was that was one, so that was basically so there was a problem with this with this automated system that didn't work very well, but it, but that problem was itself a manifestation of a deeper issue, which is that you had. I would say shoddy management. You had people making bad decisions, um, and as a result of that fundamental underlying issue, you have other problems cropping up, like the fact that we don't know. We, at this point, we don't know why this door plug came flying out. The investigation has barely just started. They haven't even figured out how to really fix them, which is why all these plans are not grounded. Um, but ultimately, the, the fact that there's so many problems seems to to kind of be indicative of a deeper problem, which is that this is a terribly managed and terribly conceived program. And is there a recognition of this at Boeing, or is there anything they can do? I mean, at this point, I wouldn't want to fly on a 737 MAX. It has a, a uniquely terrible reputation, I would say, among contemporary aircraft. Um, which hasn't really been since, seen since the day of the DC-10. And how do you get around that? Well, I think one thing you might consider is changing your leadership. Um, and unfortunately, Dave Calhoun remains the CEO. Um, he, they, they did fire the previous CEO, but Calhoun was on, on the scene before that. I mean, listen, the basic, the basic problem, it's like how deep do you want to go in, this, in, the, in the levels of – of uh, at a sort of system level, because it sounds like we have uh, a poorly run program, a poorly conceived program, a program that was designed per to preserve market share and profitability above all else. And you know, recently when all this trouble happened happened with the, the depressurization, Boeing issued a statement saying that we prioritize safety above all else, and. And, and that is something that uh, – that's the kind of noise that an airline manufacturer should make. Um, but is it true? Uh, it, it seems like they're prioritizing profits above all else and shareholder uh, you know, returns above all else. You know, they moved their headquarters from Seattle to Chicago, and they seem to have become more of a financial services company than an actual aircraft manufacturer. They've got a, they are a massive conglomerate. They have all kinds of defense business, space business. They, they do a lot of things that aren't airplanes. And um, I think, really, regulators should take a really hard look at this. And I think Congress should take a look at this. I, I think the question that should be asked at this point is, is Boeing too big? I mean, it's a massive conglomerate. It has too much power. It can do whatever it wants. It has captured the regulators. Uh, it's not good for airline passengers. It's not good for the economy. It's not good for Boeing shareholders, probably even. And it's not good for the country. So it's probably not good for the world, for that matter, uh, to have a company that's making planes that, that are sh as shoddy as this. Um, so that's that's my perspective. It's you know, 
editorializing here, but... Well, but does this mean then, short of, I don't know what the a radical solution might be, but at least an interim solution, would, would it not be to change management and put people in there that are aeronautical engineers running the company instead of numbers crunches and guys who are focused on pleasing Wall Street as opposed to yeah. passenger safety? Well, I think that's an eminently reasonable goal. How you get there, I don't know, because you have a, this is an incredibly powerful company that, that is held uh, in the death grip of, of this CEO who's earning many millions of dollars a year. And, um, you know, when you, when you have a, you know, when you're too big to fail, which is what Boeing is, it's not easy to implement that kind of cultural uh, overhaul. And I think something like a congressional hearing would probably be a good first step, frankly. So from the point of view, though, of the traveling public, is there anything that you can do? I mean, the planes are grounded now, but I'm sure they'll be back in the air before we know it. Uh, yeah. And is there any way that, for example, I, I don't want to fly in one, but if I called up Alaska Airlines and wanted to go visit my daughter or something and ask them what the carrier is, is, is the plane a 737 MAX? If so, I'm not going to take the flight. Is there any way that you can do that? Is my that understanding practical? from my own personal, I think that you can, it's usually when you book a flight, it, it'll tell you what the aircraft type is. Um, now, if you want to go someplace, you know, for, for, the, the 737 is a very widely used plane for short haul flights. And as time goes by, more and more of those 737s are 737 MAXs because the older aircraft are replaced by the newer ones. And this is the only small airliner that Boeing is making anymore. So yeah, I think you can avoid it if it's that much of a priority to you. I would hasten to say that for all the problems this plane has had, including the very most recent one, it is statistically very, 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 very safe. Um, and even if you are careful to like not sit on a window seat or sit, you know try to take an aisle seat, um, I, I wouldn't personally avoid 737 Maxes. I, I think that they they're much worse than they should be, but they're much much better than any anybody should worry about them. But what are the alternatives? Are there is there a similar aircraft you mentioned Airbus earlier, Jeff? Yeah. So Airbus has Airbus is Airbus and Boeing between them dominate the the manufacturing of airliners. And in this segment, which is like around 150 passengers, you've got the 737 made by Boeing and the A320 series made by Airbus. And this includes the A319, A321, Neo. There's there's sort of various iterations uh, that that they make. But that's basically your, your option. If you get on a single-aisle plane that's small, um, but, it has air, but it has engines under the wing, then it's probably one of those two things. So is there a number of airlines that have the Airbus? I mean, what would the, be the breakdown of who has the 737 Maxis as opposed to who has the uh, Airbuses? Well, I haven't got those at my fingertips. Southwest is famous for flying 737s. Um, a lot of the European well. carriers are yeah. gonna are gonna be a lot of. The, but um, yeah, I don't I don't have it in front in front of me. But yeah. it's there. That's your choice. I mean, it's one or the other, basically. 
Right. But let's talk a little bit in the last couple of minutes then, Jeff, about, first of all, your your book, The Taking of MH370, which is the Malaysian airliner that disappeared over the Indian Ocean. You have a new podcast, Deep Dive MH370. What is so significant about the disappearance of MH370? Well, 239 people disappeared into the night on March 8th, 2014. It is by far the most profound aviation mystery uh, to date. And really, they spent, uh, the, 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 the search wound up in the hands of the Australians, and they spent two years searching the seabed. Um, they, they searched an area the size of Great Britain. They did not find it. And how they came to think that, that it was there in that seabed and why they failed um, is, a, is, a, is a really unanswered question. And there's been a lot of interest in the, in the mystery. Um, and there's been a lot of people have talked about it a lot. There's been documentaries and, and um, other podcasts and things. But what really no one has done is, is take it, uh, go at it in a really rigorous way to kind of break down all of the evidence we have step by step. It's frankly a very technical mystery. I liken it to a Swiss watch. It has a lot of small moving parts. And if you don't know what all the parts are, there's no way you're going to understand what happened. And so that's what the deep dive MH370 is all about. It's about taking uh, the event. And it, this unfolded over the span of seven hours. It's really incredible. The plane, as you recall, went electronically dark 40 minutes into its flight just after it had left Malaysian airspace to the 180, went back over the Malayan Peninsula, flew, was, was seen on military radar, disappeared from military radar, and then reemerged when, for reasons unknown, somebody on board the plane turned on its satellite communication system, which then produced a very strange set of signals that Inmarsat scientists and, and Australian investigators were able to decipher. And that's what convinced them that they had to look on this patch of seabed. And yet when they looked there, the plane wasn't there. So it's really a riddle wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a mystery. And that's what we're trying to resolve. And I think that if you do come with us on this journey, you'll see that there's, there's clarity uh, that uh, has been missed. But there is proof, though, that it did crash in the Indian Ocean, right? Didn't a piece of it wash ashore in East Africa? You know... I wouldn't. I think proof is a strong word. Um, there is evidence, and when you have um, when you have a mystery like MH370, you can try to come up with hypotheses that explain all of the different pieces of evidence that you have. But what you'll find is that nothing really fits with all of it well. The most probably popular, I would say, um, is with what I call the the pilot murder suicide theory that the pilot, uh, for whatever reasons, decided to commit suicide and take everyone with him, flew it into the southern Indian Ocean, and, 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 and that's why um, all of these signals were generated. The problem with that is that if that's what happened, we would have, we should have found the plane on the seabed by now. And there's other, there's other aspects, too, that don't fit so well into that theory. And then the, the alternative is that, well, These signals that were generated were generated generated as a result of an event that nobody can really explain, which is this SATCOM system being turned back on. And so so I think something that really has to be looked at carefully is the possibility of whether 
this plane was the victim of a hacking because there was there does seem to be a vulnerability that existed in this plane at that time and that opens the possibility to a third party hijacker who is using a very sophisticated understanding of the airplane systems in order to make it seem like it was going one way when it was really going another that might seem outlandish to people but nowadays we're really starting to see the effects of electronic warfare on airplanes i don't know i did a piece in, that just ran in new york magazine about how GPS signals are being spoofed, and so planes, the pilots flying a plane think that they're, they're in point A when they're really in point B. And there was a case uh, just in the last few months where a plane almost flew into Iranian airspace because the GPS had been hacked. Well, that is something f for another discussion. That is just so <laughs> alarming. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of stunned here. We'll have to do another interview, Jeff, at some point soon, sure. because that's a big issue. And I thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jeff Weiss, who's a science journalist specializing in aviation and psychology, a licensed pilot of gliders and light planes. He has served as an on-camera aviation analyst on CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC, and his articles have appeared in the New York Magazine, New York Times, Time, Business Week, Esquire, and many others. And he's the author of the taking of MH370, and he has a new podcast, Deep Dive MH370. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the case brought by South Africa against Israel in the International Court of Justice, accusing the Jewish state of genocide in Gaza and calling for an immediate ceasefire. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Hold me like you never let me go. Cause I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. Oh, babe, I hate to go. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Chris McGreal, who writes for The Guardian U.S. and is a former Guardian correspondent in Washington, Johannesburg, and Jerusalem. And he's the author of American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. And he has an article at The Guardian, How Apartheid History Shaped South Africa's Genocide Case Against Israel. Jewish, Jewish groups have accused the ANC of anti-Semitism, but the International Court of Justice case stems from the party's long-standing support for Palestinians. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris McGrill. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. And of course, much of the Global South supports uh, the Palestinians and not Israel, and it's similarly the case with Ukraine. They don't support the U.S. and NATO effort in Ukraine. So what do you think, though, is this case likely to generate? What's the status of it? So there's hearings at the International Court of Justice on Thursday and Friday, essentially to consider um, whether to proceed with it's quite a technical business, but essentially what South Africa is looking for is a ruling from the ICJ that uh, uh, in, interdicts uh, Israel from committing genocide. And, and in short, that would mean an end uh, to the attack on Gaza, a ceasefire or a withdrawal. Um, but it technically uh, doesn't directly, uh, would, the ICJ wouldn't directly order that. It would simply say that uh, Israel was ordered 
not to uh, commit genocide. But genocide's a pretty loaded term, isn't it? I mean, perhaps ethnic cleansing is more appropriate. What do you think? Well, the um, ethnic cleansing isn't a legal term. It's quite a common term these days, and it kind of emerged out of the Balkan Wars in the, in the 1990s with the breakup of Yugoslavia. Uh, but there's no legal term for ethnic cleansing, whereas there is a very specific 1948 uh, International Convention Against Genocide. So uh, the reason they've gone for genocide is there's a legal base for that. Um, ethnic cleansing really just falls under broader uh, crimes against humanity under the Geneva Convention. Um, the South Africans have put together a very lengthy document in which they're very specific about uh, why they think it's genocide. And this ranges from the language used by Israeli officials, including the Israeli prime minister, who essentially invoked a biblical uh, uh, biblical uh, passage, uh, which talks about killing Israel's enemies, um, uh, through to some of the actions uh, that the Israelis have been taking, including just simply the, the large-scale bombardment of civilian areas, plus the uh, the language used by military officials, which some of them, uh, for instance, have said things such as, uh, we are um, targeting infrastructure for destruction um, uh, uh, and not necessarily focused on uh, what happens to the civilian population. Um, so that, that, that there's there's kind of international reasons under international law why South Africa has gone for genocide over um, over uh, you know kind of alternative accusations. So do you think then, Chris, that Israel's angry response to this is to do with the term genocide, given the history of what happened to the Jews in World War Two? I think that's part of it, for sure, although Israel has an angry response to any criticism of uh, its um, its military actions, which it portrays, not just in this case, post the Hamas attack on Israeli civilians in October, but, it, you know, in pretty much every case, they portray it as a, as a, a defensive measure, as military necessity, as protecting themselves from terrorism, um, and people who suggest that they might have alternative uh, uh, motives are then subject to accusations of blood libel and anti-Semitism, as South Africa has in this case. Clearly, a, a charge of genocide um, touches a nerve, and that will perhaps be one of the reasons that you know, South Africa has pursued it and uh, and it is having such an impact. I mean, one of the interesting things to note about this, though, is that uh, Israel is taking this up and will defend it. Now, Israel has, in the past, has actually just brushed off accusations in international courts and tried to push them aside or just simply ignored them, such as when there was a ruling at The Hague against the wall, the, the barrier that uh, Israel built through the West Bank that confiscated territory and was ostensibly a security measure against uh, suicide bombings, but also became uh, a means of annexing territory. Um, this, on this occasion, Israel has chosen to defend itself. It's sending a former uh, member of the Israeli Supreme Court as one of its representatives. And I think that's because they, the Israeli authorities are increasingly worried by uh, what's going on in the international legal arena. Um, in the past, the United States has pretty much always been there to defend Israel uh, in diplomatic forums. But it 
you know, particularly, for instance, the United Nations Security Council. But it can't do that uh, at, uh, in these international courts, um, partly because in the case of the International Criminal Court, which um, has its own investigation of Israel underway for breaching the Geneva Conventions and other alleged war crimes, um, uh, the uh, U.S. isn't even a signatory. Um, but in the case of the ICJ, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a court with a long history. And I think Israel is increasingly worried that uh, not only uh, will this, you know, damage it, uh, these, these court rulings damage it uh, internationally, but actually that its officials could be open to arrest warrants, its soldiers could be uh, facing arrest under international uh, arrest warrants. Um, and it's clear that the, the countries become increasingly worried about these, these maneuvers, uh, these moves in the international uh, legal arena. And Chris, since you uh, were the Guardian's correspondent in Johannesburg, tell us about, I mean, it seems that the Jewish community in South Africa, a lot of members of the community supported the ANC, but then there are also a more conservative group as well uh, who supported the apartheid government, or at least Israel's connections to the apartheid government, given that the Israelis tested their nuclear weapon towards the end of the Carter administration off the coast of uh, what's now Namibia, and that I believe that Israel gave essentially South Africa the nuclear fuel for six nuclear weapons, which when the apartheid regime fell, were taken back to Israel. Yeah, there was a, there was quite a complex uh, relationship between Israel and uh, apartheid South Africa and between the Jewish community in South Africa and apartheid. Um, in short, there were very, you know, prominent uh, Jewish members of the ANC uh, who opposed apartheid, uh, who were arrested along with Mandela. Some went on trial, some actually escaped. Um, and they, they were very uh, prominent figures. Uh, and, and amongst those who were arrested and put on trial with Mandela, uh, amongst the whites, uh, they were almost all Jewish. Um, so they, they were figured that for such a small community, it figured very uh, prominently in the fight against apartheid. But they weren't, to be honest, they, they were not representative of the broader Jewish community and certainly the Jewish establishment led by the uh, South African uh, Jewish Board of Deputies uh, cozied up uh, to the um, to the South African administration, to the apartheid government. Um, it had a very close relationship uh, at one point with them. Um, it tended, to be honest, to uh, marginalize and spurn those Jews who opposed apartheid. And, and initially, I think this came out of a, a sense of uh, caution and, and the fact that the uh, leadership of the National Party, which imposed apartheid, had, had you know, had very deeply anti-Semitic roots. And you have to remember that the um, National Party came to power just three years after the end of the Second World War and the Holocaust. So there was, there was a lot of fear in the Jewish community in South Africa about what the Afrikaners might do. But I, I think by the time you get to the 1960s, it was quite clear that actually uh, Jews were not at all threatened. Um, and in fact, uh, you, you see them... Uh, prosper under apartheid. They, their, their incomes much higher on average than most white people, um, and there's there's no real threat to their security. But as the develop as the the 
relationship between Israel and apartheid South Africa, based largely on military cooperation, develops because these are two countries that essentially have become pariah states. So they they become quite, you know, they 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 work very closely because of that support by apartheid South Africa for Israel. Uh, the Jewish establishment uh, organizations in, in South Africa see that that benefits Israel, and they work quite closely with, uh, with, the, um, uh, with the apartheid government. And I mean, it, it reaches a point where you have the, the relationship, as you say, is very close to a, the development of nuclear weapons, the provision of yellow cake from South Africa to uh, Israel for its nuclear weapons, but also... I mean, in 1976, you have the mind-boggling scene of John Forster, who was the prime minister of apartheid South Africa at the time, um, a man who had been interned uh, during the Second World War for his Nazi sympathies, uh, for his overt support of, of Hitler, and uh, for being member of a, a fascist militia, which actually burned Jews out of their properties. Um, 30 years later, he's, he trots off to Jerusalem, where he's welcomed as a long-lost friend. Um, and the defense minister, Shimon Peres, uh, actually greets uh, – he writes a, a private letter at the time, but it's, uh, it's made public much later – um, in which he describes Israel and apartheid South Africa as two countries standing against injustice. So this is the nature of the relationship that then develops. Um, and when um, when uh, uh, South Africa creates its black homeland, the Bantu stands, Israel becomes quite heavily involved in trying to make those work, involved in construction and business and training their armies. Um, and that doesn't go unnoticed by other Israelis, particularly on the right. Ariel Sharon, who was a general back in those days and would later become prime minister, he visits South Africa. Uh, he sees how the black homelands, the Bantustans work, and actually it makes a great impression on him. And it, it forms part of his idea for the future of, a, of, of Palestinians, how they, how they should be governed and becomes part of his plan. So, just in the last couple of minutes, uh, isn't the spokesperson for Netanyahu, Regev, isn't he, he's also uh, South African or South African-born? No, he's Australian. He's, he's Australian, Australian, is he? Oh, oh yeah. I didn't realise yeah. that. Uh, I should know that since I'm Australian. <laughs> yes, you can say, sounds like it. Yeah. I mean, you might want to ask about how that all of that past now affects Israel, uh, the ANC's view of, South, of Israel today, because it has had a long impact, of course. Oh, well, go ahead and answer that. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, the ANC in power today hasn't forgotten that, um, that history. Uh, the ANC, in any case, as a liberation organization, had close relations with the Palestine Liberation Organization and has, has always identified with their cause. Mandela had said that uh, South Africa wouldn't be free until Palestine is free, um, although he also recognized the right of Israel uh, to uh, exist within its, safely within its borders. Um, but um, I think you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the ANC to this day identify very closely with the Palestinians, and all the more so because they see the the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians, their methods of government, 
um, the way that they're imposing the the domination of the Palestinians as very akin to apartheid. It reminds them, as Desmond Tutu uh, once said, uh, you know, it reminded very closely of what black people in South Africa went through. And so I think, you know, relations between Israel and South Africa have deteriorated anyway in recent years, going back uh, to the to the 2018 uh, uh, Israeli army's killing of border protesters in Gaza. Um, at that point, uh, South Africa downgraded its diplomatic relations, and they've never really recovered. Um, so what we're seeing now with the uh, ICG case uh, accusing Israel of genocide isn't a sudden development. It's actually the, you know, the kind of result of a, a, a long um, history between the ANC and Israel. Well, Chris McGreal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Chris McGreal, who writes for The Guardian US and is a former Guardian correspondent in Washington, Johannesburg and Jerusalem. He's the author of American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. And his latest article at The Guardian is How Apartheid History Shaped South Africa's Genocide Case Against Israel. Jewish groups have accused the ANC of anti-Semitism, but the International Court of Justice case stems from the party's longstanding support for Palestinians. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether the Biden campaign just getting underway can return the party to the New Deal fight for the common man and equal opportunity instead of identity politics and sucking up to Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is John Judas, editor-at-large at Talking Points Memo, and the author of many books, including The Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the Revolt Against Globalization, and The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, and Socialism. He's written for numerous publications, including The New Republic, The National Journal, The New York Times Magazine, and The Washington Post Magazine, and his latest book, co-written with Rui Taxiera is Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in an Age of Extremes. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Judas. Uh, good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And your book is an, an important book in terms of this year that's just begun, particularly now that President Biden has launched his campaign with a speech at Valley Forge, basically defending democracy against Trump. But I'm wondering whether or not when you talk about the political center, which is what all the parties over the decades, which is what both of the parties over the decades have tried to hew towards the sensible center after the primaries where they hew to the left in on the Democratic side and the right on the Republican side. This assumption's always been, as far as I know from political analysis of American politics, is that the center is a sweet spot. But is there a center left? I mean, the Republican Party is a far-right party. Where, If there's a center, it's probably in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think what we've had uh, since at least um, 
2016, if not earlier, is a situation where uh, both parties have extreme wings. Uh, they're not necessarily represented even by the politicians, but they might be represented by uh, political groups associated with them, media, what have you. And that elections have been fought on uh, which party uh, can make the other party's extremes the most important issue. So in 2020, uh, Biden was a really good candidate because he was a kind of neutral candidate and the election could be about Trump's uh, nuttiness, uh, especially on uh, COVID that year. Uh, and uh, Biden himself could be a kind of beh almost behind the scenes. If you remember, he, he uh, waged his campaign in the basement of his house. Uh, so uh, that was a perfect situation. It, it, again, in 2022, you had a mixed situation where in some uh, localities, uh, the Republicans were be, were able to win by uh, branding the uh, Democrats as the party of defund the police and op open borders. And in others, the Democrats were able to win by branding the Republicans the party of um eliminating abortion rights. Uh, so, uh, and also their association again with, with Trump. And I'm thinking of candidates in Arizona and Pennsylvania in particular. So really the part the, the elections have been, have uh, been fought around these uh, kind of, uh, for the most part, uh, crazy extremities of the parties. And uh, you don't have in either case of parties developing a politics that can, uh, uh, appeal to an enduring majority. You have a kind of unstable e equilibrium between the parties where, uh, you know, one year one party's in control, one year the other. And for the most part, what we've had is a kind of divided uh, government um, where it's where it's very difficult to do things. And, you know, we're facing that uh, in the coming year, certainly in Congress, where uh, we don't even know if on uh, January 19th we'll have a we'll have a federal government. But history tells us, John Judas, that parties come and go in America. If you go back to the Whigs, for example, they all they disappeared rather quickly and were replaced in part by the know-nothings, which arguably is, is a big constituency now in Trump's Republican Party. Is there a possibility of a third party emerging? I mean, the, the biggest political grouping, according to polls in this country, are independents. Yeah, I think the answer uh, is no, there isn't. I mean, you're, you're talking in the Whigs, you're talking about before the Civil War, and that's really the last time uh, when we had a, uh, a change in the uh, two-party two system. Since then, it's all been uh, Republicans and Democrats, and you have to ha really have a, a major, major, major issue that's dividing the country and that uh, uh, renders one of the parties dysfunctional. And that, that's what you had with uh, slavery and the, the, the uh, Whigs, the uh, uh, result of which was splitting into the, um, in, in becoming the Republican Party. And then you have our current uh, Republicans versus Democrats. But since then, we really have, haven't had that um, you know, there was a chance in the 80s, uh, the early 90s. But uh, no, I think in this election, the third parties are really uh, uh, a, a kind of unknown. Uh, 
And I don't even know if Robert Kennedy is a party. I mean, he's a presidential candidate, but you have, you know, West, him, you'll probably have libertarians, a few more. And uh, they could uh, they could function in a way that's really unforeseen. I think the two things that are unforeseen are the third parties. And if Trump is convicted uh, in any of these cases, what that will mean uh, for the election. So. It makes right. it, and, and and you have to add uh, no labels to that. They really are probably the yes, most. Yes, that's what I was. Yes, absolutely. No. Right. And by the way, just over the weekend at a rally in uh, Iowa, Donald Trump said that he could have negotiated a deal that would have prevented the civil war. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, God, I mean, he could have probably done a deal with it with the. Uh, uh, British too in 1776. Right, so right. yeah, another Kim Jong Un deal, right? Um, Peloponnesian so, wars too would never have occurred if <laughs> Trump was in charge of Athens. So let's talk about your new book. Where have all the Democrats gone? The soul of the party in an age of extremes. Given that so many people and most of our listeners are just terrified by the possibility of Trump becoming president again, it's not unfortunately, out of the question. So what does Biden have to do? Oh, uh, you know, our book has as little to do with the 2024 uh, election, uh, you know, as it has to do with interplanetary travel. The the 2024 uh, election is going to be fought over, uh, you know, who's the, whether Republicans and uh, the People in the middle are more scared of Biden because he's going to uh, uh, be incapable of leading the country because of his age or whether they're going to be more scared of Trump because he's going to destroy our democracy. I don't I don't think a lot of the um, of the issues that we're raising in our book are going to be emerge clearly until after the 2024 uh, elections. It's really going to be a nutty election. Uh, and 2020 was pretty much along those lines, uh, too. It's going to be a repeat of that. So you don't think that the issues that you bring up in your book, which is that you're arguing that the Democrats should return to uh, the New Deal philosophy, and they should be fighting for the common man, they should be emphasizing equal opportunity instead of identity politics, and they shouldn't be sucking up to Wall Street and Silicon Valley. It's not too late to make those changes? Oh, I think, you know, especially on a congressional and Senate level, but I'm just saying in the in the big election, the Trump versus, uh, if it is Trump versus uh, Biden, uh, we're going to be talking about crazy extremes. And, uh, y- you know, I mean, uh, Biden's age certainly doesn't figure in our calculus of where the Democrats should be going. It's a, you know, it's a very personal kind of issue. And so is uh, Trump's uh, craziness about democracy. And, uh, um, and I have no um, uh, objection to, <laughs> I, I'm not a political advisor anyway, but I, I would be doing what Biden's doing in terms of raising issues about democracy. But I don't think in the long run that's that's the uh, direction that the Democrats have to go. Well, let's talk about the book and particularly something that I've always found extraordinary, which is that the left and the Democrats or the liberals, I guess, or the progressives in this country, have been the ones that have actually done the heavy lifting, whether it goes back to 
slavery, civil rights, women's rights, human rights, you name it. Whereas on the on the right wing, on the Republican side, they've just said no. They've never offered any. But yet somehow or other, the liberals have always been on the defensive, even though they've done the heavy lifting. And it wasn't that long ago in the 60s and the, and the 70s that the liberals had a super majority on the, in the Senate. They had in the House massive majorities. On the Supreme Court, you had a majority of real liberals, not centrists like William O. Douglas, etc., and uh, Thurgood Marshall. And suddenly, over these decades, it's just disappeared. So what happened? <laughs> what happened, yeah. Um, you know, liberals haven't always done the heavy lifting. I mean, on foreign policy, actually, it's been odd kind of things like, you know, Nixon uh, recognizing China. So it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag. But... Uh, what what happened to the Democrats, I think, was uh, they lost a lot of their working class base, and that transformed uh, the party itself. Uh, it made it more receptive to sort of very extreme cultural issues. You know, some of which I might agree with, but again, whether you're going to make those uh, uh, the defining uh, issues for the party, and it made it much more susceptible to. Um, economic issues that don't benefit uh, a lot of ordinary Americans. Uh, you can go back to the what happened in the Clinton years, uh, financial deregulation, for instance. Uh, how, did, how did that turn out? Um, again, uh, trade with China, uh, removing any kinds of restrictions that had existed. Uh, all things that or seen as a betrayal of what had been the central promise of the Democratic Party, which is to make people's uh, lives better. So what happened then? You mentioned Clinton, um, with both Clinton and Obama. Did they pivot to Wall Street because our money-driven politics are such that the money from the unions was drying up, so they had to go to the same source that the... Republicans get their money from. Was that what's happened or was it something? I, I think the decline of the of the labor movement was the key event that uh, transformed the Democratic Party. And it wasn't just a matter of, of money. Uh, you know, the, the, the labor movement was a huge donor to Democrats and still is. But it was a matter of uh, the who the people uh, were who identified as Democrats. What the labor movement did is it brought, uh, again, uh, it created an identification for with the working class and the Democratic Party. And as uh, unions themselves began to decline, I mean, in the 1950s, one third of the uh, uh, of uh, working families uh, uh, had a union member. That's, you know, now... What private uh, industry, 6% is unionized. That's uh, it's almost inconsequential uh, in terms of the country itself and in terms of the politics. So you really lost uh, influence within a large part of, of the working class in, in the country. And um, the, the 
the labor movement also did a lot of the uh, political uh, moving and shaking within uh, cities, local city and state elections. And that's a lot of where uh, the Democrats have gotten killed in the last 25 years uh, is uh, in state legislatures, governorships, things like that. So um, you, you really lost a lot uh, with the decline of the labor movement. And, you know, you can blame that on a lot of things. Uh, companies go, going overseas, uh, uh, very aggressive corporate campaigns against uh, unionization, uh, an, a national labor relations board that really favored corporations over labor. But all those things combined uh, had the result that by the 80s, uh, uh, labor really was losing its clout, and it was losing its clout within the democratic circles themselves. It was part of the democratic, uh, you could call it the governing class. Um, you know, the, the, the Democrats could not advance policies that uh, unions did not like. They, they wouldn't necessarily do what the unions wanted, but they couldn't contravene them. So uh, by the 90s, that's really changed. And, the, you know, again, I guess the key event is NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which the unions uh, universally opposed and which uh, Clinton got passed. Now, that's, you know, that wasn't uh, catastrophic, but that was a sign, again, that the unions had lost their influence within the Democratic Party. Well, but Clinton, of course, had the trifecta when he got elected that only lasted for two years. He controlled the White, the Democrats controlled the White House, the Senate, and the House, and they didn't move to protect unions in terms of what's now called the Pro Act. And the same thing happened with Obama in two thousand and nine. Right, he put all of his efforts into Obamacare. So, and all those efforts uh, produced a bill that uh, was not the greatest uh, form of uh, national health insurance, though it's better than what we have, right, what we but, had before. But they didn't make a priority out of making unions stronger and more resilient, particularly in terms of the details that, yes, in terms of what and, is in the Pro Act. I, 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 we relate this in the book that when Obama took office. Uh, some of his wealthy contributors saw a real danger that he might make uh, uh, strengthening labor law a priority. And he got a message from three Chicagoans, one of whom is Penny Pritzker, who's now in the news because she's the head of the Harvard Corporation, and she became his Secretary of Commerce. Uh, Lester Crown, and I can't forget, remember the the third, but uh, not to do this, and uh, he didn't. He he made, again, he made other things his priority. Right. So does that mean that Clinton and Obama were? I mean, in Clinton's case, was he just in the thrall of rich people? He liked hanging out with them, or in Obama's case, in the thrall of these techno utopians uh, like? the Silicon Valley types like Eric Schmidt, who was the number one visitor to the Obama White House? Uh, I don't think it was uh, personal. Uh, I mean, I don't think it was like he, he so much he liked hanging around them, but uh, I think it was a question of who had the power within the uh, Dem Democratic Party. Uh, you know, I remember with Saban, this, this uh, Haim Saban, the... the um, you're in you're in L.A., right? The the right. Uh, 
enormously wealthy uh, American Israeli uh, contributor to the Democratic Party uh, complaining about uh, Obama's uh, putting too much pressure on the Israelis uh, to negotiate uh, to negotiate with the Palestinians in his first term, and lo and behold, uh, Obama changes. So it's not that he had liked hanging around with uh, this guy, but again, they had enormous power as the as the donor class for the Democratic Party, and they provided again a lot of the uh, officials. Uh, I mean, the Clinton's uh, White House and Treasury and was like a again like an offshoot of Goldman Sachs, and you had a lot of the same people going uh, into the uh, Obama administration. Right. Well, just in closing, John Judas, of course, Biden himself has fallen victim to the need or the perception to that you need the Democrats need to protect the donor base. He went over to Israel shortly after October the 7th and hugged Netanyahu, and he may have been doing the bidding of the donors, but he seemed to underestimate the reaction from the base, particularly young Democrats who are furious about what's happening in Gaza. Yeah, that's a whole other issue. You know, I wrote a book called Genesis about American Jews and uh, tr- the Truman era. Uh, but uh, I think some of Obama's reaction, I mean, some of Biden's reaction was uh, uh, personal. I mean, I think he's always been a strong supporter of Israel. And uh, he recoiled at the horror of what uh, happened on, on October 7th. And it, I don't think he was... Uh, fully aware or emotionally engaged with what the Israeli government had been doing uh, for years before and what particularly the the uh, the government that came into power in December of uh, 2022 had been doing vis-a-vis the Palestinians. Uh, so uh, I think that that uh, I think that that shaped his reaction. I don't think in that case he was that worried about the the uh, the donor class. So just in closing, back to your book and the fact that we're in this critical election year, is there a possibility that at least some of the white working class that Trump has managed to peel off from the Democrats, is there any way that Biden can bring some of them back? Uh, I, I, You know, he brought some of them back before. I, again, I think that a lot of it will have to do with how people see Trump. Uh, and whether they're sufficiently scared of him. And uh, those fears are certainly not uh, confined to people with uh, advanced degrees. Uh, So I think that that's what, that'll be the uh, question for uh, uh, Biden and for uh, Democrats in the election. Well, John Judas, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I'm E. Spinkman, John Judas, editor-at-large at Talking Points Memo, and the author of many books, including The Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the Revolt Against Globalization, and The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, and Socialism. And his latest book, co-written with Rui Taxiera, is Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in an Age of Extremes. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.